Welcome to another episode of a special podcast we like to call From the Archives. These are hand-picked sermons and sermon series preached in our church over the years by some of the pastors, elders and special guests we've had the privilege of listening to. We hope and we pray that as we listen to these classic messages, we'll be challenged in our walk with Jesus and encouraged to trust in him more and more. That being said, let's dive into the episode. Welcome back to the From the Archives podcast. I hope you've really been benefiting over the last couple of months as we've taken the time to listen back through our series on 1 Thessalonians and most recently through Psalm 119. If you haven't listened to those yet, I thoroughly recommend you do so. Anyway, just to fill you in, what I'm planning to do over the month of December is take a a look back and listen to some of the sermons that we've preached Uh, with a Christmas vibe, with a Christmas feel to them. Four episodes, the first two of which are going to be a mini-series that John preached a number of years ago, uh, titled The Reason for the Season, and then I'm going to follow that up with a couple of quick, short, nice nativity sermons from yours truly. So that's the plan. Uh, Christmas certainly is worth preparing our hearts, preparing our minds, preparing just in general to enjoy and to recognise its full significance. Anyway, I should shut up and hand over to John. Enjoy. Let's have a show of hands. Who is completely ready for Christmas? So hands up who's completely ready. You've bought your presents, you've wrapped your presents, you've hidden your presents, and you've remembered where you've hidden your presents. Hands up. Okay, hands up who's nearly there. You've pretty much bought them or they're on order. Uh, You've got a general idea. Hands up who's pretty much there. Okay, hands up. hands up who's just a little bit stressed that you've come to church to forget about Christmas, and I've just mentioned it. Um, there's a few of you. I, I spoke to one guy this week. I, I won't say who he was. I said, oh, how are you doing on the presents? Friend? He says, oh, I've only got one left to buy. I said, that's brilliant. He said, yeah, but I only had one present to buy anyway. Um, and, and one thing I'm learning is that we need to prepare for Christmas. This is one thing I, I'm starting to get year after year after year. I need to think it through. I really was that guy who the last couple of days before Christmas was going down to Trostre, going into boots on these three for two kind of things that no one really wants. Um, but this is the only thing I can buy at the last moment. I'm the man who bought myself, a, my, my wife, a glitter ball and a toy car once as gifts. So um, that's a true story, isn't it? Uh, um, I, I, I just, I'm learning I need to prepare. So this year, I've ordered them. They've all come through. Um, they're all there. I haven't quite wrapped them yet, um, but I'm getting there. But it's not just presents, is it? The other thing you've got to prepare, and this is something that has been new in my life over the last seven years, is which family are you going to spend which day with? So is it the in-laws or the outlaws? Because if one gets it, the other one's going to want it. And as we heard about the bungee cord, there is a bungee cord to every family, isn't there? Um, And you've got to decide where you're going to do it before they all decide. Another thing you've got to prepare just to worry you is your pay packet. Because it is a long month. And what's worse, January is even longer. So now you've got to do some magic things with your money. And the final thing you've got to prepare is buy new clothes. Um, because we eat so much food, all our clothes that fit quite snugly at the moment, by the start of January, won't fit any longer. So I just find the best thing to do is buy new clothes in the sale, a size up, um, and you're okay. Um, there's so much to do to, to prepare. Now, when you have a list like that, it's easy to be so busy preparing all the kind of outward stuff that we forget to prepare our hearts for Christmas. 
Um, because really, Christmas is one of those times of years and the new year where we get to look at our hearts and we get to look at our lives. And so one of the things I want to do um, today as we start this little mini-series, The Reason for the Season, is, is look at why do we have Christmas um, and how do we prepare our hearts for Christmas? Um, so how do, we, how do we make sure that we make the most of Christmas? Because if you don't prepare for Christmas, Christmas will just come. And this is one thing I've learned. If you don't decide what your heart's going to be like at Christmas, your heart will become something. Our hearts are quite funny like that, isn't it? It's, it's like worship. Um, so if you decide not to worship something, it's not that you don't worship something, you end up worshipping something else. Uh, Calvin, the, the great theologian, said that our heart is an idol factory. Um, we always end up worshipping something. And when it comes to Christmas, our hearts will become obsessed about something, whether we want it to or, or not. Um, so one example is um, materialism. That's the classic one. You all knew I was going to say that. Um, you can become so obsessed with gifts that all you care about now is that you can't afford the iPad or you can't get the new car or you can't afford that Tiffany ring or, or anything like that. And, and so you become materialistic or you think, right, well, I'm going to take out and max my credit card to get this certain gift. And, and before you know it, your heart is obsessed with material things. I, I can still remember as a spoilt brat kid, one of my lowest points in my life um, was where all year I wanted a snooker table. That's all I wanted was a snooker table. I was obsessed with snooker. So my parents duly took note of my obsession with a snooker table. They saved up for the snooker table. They bought the snooker table. They hid the snooker table. Two weeks before Christmas, I discovered guitars. So I wanted guitars. And, and to my shame, on Christmas Day, I looked at the snooker table and had a poodie. To my shame. I just didn't want it. I changed my mind. I wanted guitars. Didn't you know I wanted a guitar? Can't you get me a guitar? All my friends are having a guitar. You don't like me, do you? And I, I, you know how it goes. But, but it's not just as, as a teenager, as a spoiled brat child, we do that. I think even as adults, sometimes we can become obsessed with materialism over Christmas. Another area I think we can get obsessed with is fear. I think Christmas is a time where we have fear. So we have fears about our families. We have fears about our in-laws. We have fears that... At Christmas, that's where the tensions arise, isn't it? And so we can end up just heading into Christmas, just not wanting to get into any confrontation, just not wanting to fall out with anybody, just hoping that that certain uncle won't get drunk or that certain auntie won't do what she did last year. And you just end up spending Christmas being in, in fear. Or the one that I think is most common with men is um, we just give up. And we just have a guts full, and then we end up becoming grumpy old men. And we spend Christmas just sitting in the corner going, bah, humbug. I, I didn't get what I want. We never do what I want. And I just want Christmas to be over. And when can I go back to work? Uh, we end up being grumpy old men. And so when it comes to Christmas, one of the things I want to do this year is, first week of December, is say, hey, let's, let's prepare our hearts. Let's look at our hearts for Christmas, and let's make the most of it. And, and so the key to our hearts is the reason for the season. If we want to prepare our hearts, then we need to know what is Christmas all about. Now, Christmas is all about one word, um, and it's a word we use uh, in the church, and it's called the word incarnation. Now, incarnation is, is really a way of saying incarnate, in flesh. So ultimately, just like Easter is all about the death and resurrection of Jesus, Christmas is all about the incarnation, God becoming flesh. So before 2,000 years ago, God was in heaven, in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
The son, Jesus, would appear many times in the Old Testament. We saw him walk in the garden. We saw him go into the fiery furnace. We saw him appear many times as the angel of the Lord. Um, But he never took on flesh permanently. He would come and he would go. But in the first Christmas, something amazing happened. Jesus became a baby. Jesus became one of us. God entered his creation. Um, So can you imagine... You know, sometimes you like to, to play with uh, clay with the children. So with Play-Doh, and you make little Play-Doh men, and they look quite impressive, don't they? But they're not that amazing compared to kind of our kind of biology and how our body works. You know, they, they can't really do anything. Well, can you imagine, in order to love your Play-Doh, you became a piece of Play-Doh? I mean, it would be outrageous, wouldn't it? But actually, for God to become man is very much the same. Because we, compared to God, are, are so small. And yet God became one of us. He became one of his creations. Now, some of you are animal lovers, aren't you? You love your dog or your cat. After church, you've got a cat from Winnenangarad, but the RSPCA have stopped that. Um, So some of you are cat lovers. Now, can you imagine some of you are obsessed with your cats and you talk to them and you're pretty convinced that they're real. I I know that, and they have emotions and and talk. But, But whilst you believe that, Imagine if I said to you, hey, I've got a machine, and you can become a cat. Not for an hour or a day, irreversible. You become a cat. You take on the limitations of a cat. You take on the life of a cat. Well, it doesn't matter how much you love your cat. Would you really give up all of your abilities as a human being, as a reasoning human being who is able to do so much, would you give that all up to become a cat? Now, some of you are thinking... Yeah, I could lie down all day, eat food. Um, because you know what they say, isn't it? Dogs have owners and cats have slaves. That's pretty much how you think about it. And, and so some of you, but, but really, would you, would you limit yourself so much? And that's what's so amazing about the first Christmas is, is God who is everywhere, God who is above all things, God who knows all things in Jesus Christ became a baby, became one of us. He took on flesh, irreversible. It wasn't that when he died, he went back to heaven, he didn't have flesh. Jesus now is in flesh. He is incarnate. It is is permanent. So so think about that. He had to learn to eat. He had to learn to go to the toilet. He had to learn to read. He had to develop his brain. He had to develop his muscles. He had to grow like a normal child. He had to grow in favor with people around him. He had to grow in favor with God. He had to grow in his fear of the Lord. He had to grow in everything. So God, who made everything, became a part of everything. He gave up everything to come and be one of us. And that's what we remember at Christmas, is the incarnation. And it's it's one of the most beautiful doctrines, it's one of the most beautiful teachings in the Bible. And so the reason for the season primarily is the incarnation. So so the next question that follows is, is, well, if we come at Christmas to remember God becoming flesh, the next question is, is, well, why? Why do that? Why would you become a piece of Play-Doh? Why would you become a cat? Why would you give up everything? Why would God eternal, all over everything, being worshipped in heaven by angels, why would he come to a crib? Why would he come and be born? Well, I think the answer comes in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. 
He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He reads from Isaiah. Um, If you look down at the bottom of your Bible, you can see where the reading comes from in verses 18 to 19. It comes from Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58. Now, Isaiah is a big book. It was written over a number of years, um, and it comes in sections. And the section that he took the readings from are the sections on what we call the suffering servant. Um, You know that section. You know it from Isaiah 52 and 53. Surely he took all our infinity, um, uh, all ours by his stripes we are healed. He was punished so that we could go free. It's, It's that section which describes the sufferings of Christ. So it's in that section. But as well, it was written to the Jews for when they were in exile. For when they had been taken from the promised land, when the Babylonians had taken them off, it was there to teach them about what to happen. Now, when you read it, it's, 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 it's a little bit odd at the end, because it mentions something in verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Now, the year of the Lord's favour is a huge thing in the Old Testament. It's also called the year of Jubilee. Maybe you remember uh, Jubilee 2000 was a big movement. Uh, if you remember, Jubilee 2000 was all about eradicating debt, cancelling debts. Well, in the New Testament, in Leviticus 25, um, God introduced the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favour. And primarily, in its first mountain of fulfilment, what it was about was putting into the people of Israel a structure whereby every 50 years, all debts were cancelled. All slaves were allowed to go free. So the Lord put in a way whereby it wouldn't be generation after generation after generation getting into debt, but every 50 years, everything would revert back. It was a way of putting mercy into the people of God. It was a way of showing that there was something different. And so it was looking primarily in Leviticus at this year that came every 50 years. But when you get to Isaiah, Isaiah is now saying, and saying, actually, that was a picture of something greater And so when Isaiah is writing to the Jews in exile, he's saying there's going to be another jubilee. There's going to be another year of the Lord. But it's not just a 50-year thing where all the slaves go free and all the debts are cancelled. Actually, it's going to be a year when you're going to be freed from exile. You're going to be freed from being under the Babylonians. And if you remember, Cyrus comes along under the Syrians and he releases them. And so there's the first, which is every 50 years, and then there's the second in Isaiah this year, the Lord's favour, the Jubilee, which is them being released from slavery, it's them being released from this bondage and oppression. But what Jesus does is he picks up on it and says, do you know what? The 50 years was looking forward to the return of the egg from the exile, and he says, do you know what? Both of those are shadows and pictures of something greater. Because what Jesus says is, he says in verse 9, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And in verse 21, he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus is saying the year of the Lord's favour, the Jubilee, wasn't just looking at every 50 years. It wasn't just looking at the return from the exile. It was looking to today. 
And so Jesus comes at the start of his ministry in his big hometown gig in the local synagogue, and he says, I am now proclaiming the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. All that was in the Old Testament were looking forward to this. And actually, the Lord's mission, his reason for coming, his reason for coming into this world is all in these verses, verses 18 and 19 from Isaiah. So he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me, he's just been out in the desert, he's uh, been anointed in his baptism, and he says, the reason I've been anointed is to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, and to release the oppressed. So you remember, it was about the slaves being freed, it was about debts being forgiven, it was about the Jews and the Israelites in oppression and out of their own country being freed and released. And so Jesus comes and says, now the ultimate fulfillment is here. So really, what those were like were like um, an engagement ring. An engagement ring is a sign of intent, but it's looking forward to the wedding ring. And so really, those were the engagement ring, and now is the wedding ring. This is the real deal. This is what it's all about. And so Jesus says he's come to do that. And so the question is, what does it mean that Jesus has come to give a year of jubilee? What does it mean that Jesus has come to pronounce the year of the Lord's favour? Because he says it's now fulfilled, and whatever it is, it is greater than what was in the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to say something that I think is important. It's not less than was in the Old Testament, but it's more than was in the Old Testament. So what Jesus is proclaiming is not less than in the Old Testament. So it's not less than slaves being freed, debts being cancelled, the poor being helped, the oppressed being freed. It's not less than that. So it includes that, but it's more than that. In the Old Testament, it was very physical. It was very much about people and money and material things. And as well, it was very limited. So what happened every 50 years? Debts were cancelled. What happened the next year? they got into debt. And the next year, they got into debt. And the next year, they got into debt. Fifty years later, the debts are cancelled. What happened? They got into debt. What about the second fulfillment of the year of the Jubilee? Well, they came out of their oppression. They came out from under Babylonians after they were taken over by the Syrians. But then what happened? In the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Romans came along and they came and occupied their land again. So even though they were freed, yet again they were oppressed. The New Testament is written into a culture where the Christians and the Jews are under oppression. So these two fulfillments in the Old Testament, while they're great, they're not permanent. So what Jesus comes is and says, I'm proclaiming the year of the Lord, the year of Jubilee, it is fulfilled. So now we're entering something greater. Not something that just happens for a time, but for something that happens once and permanently. Jesus is talking about something far, far greater. Let me just unpack what it means. Um, I think it means two things. Um, I'm going to add a third at the end for us. But the first thing that this Lord, year of the Lord's Jubilee is, it's a proclamation. This is the first point. It's, it's a proclamation. So, so have a look at it. He says, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. Why? To preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Primarily, this is a message. This is a something to be um, preached. Now, when it comes, it's not primarily a physical thing, but a spiritual thing. So think about it. 
When he comes, Jesus' primary message is not one of setting the captives free and giving sight to the blind and releasing the poor from their poverty. Whilst he does that, that's not his primary thing. What does he go on to preach all the time? He goes on to preach the kingdom of God. In fact, when you look at the words in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they have a spiritual significance. So poverty being poor in the Old and the New Testament both means physical, but it can also mean spiritual. So who's blessed, according to Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount first? Blessed are the poor in spirit. When you read through the Psalms, um, let me give you a list here. You can read through Psalm 40, 70, 86, and 109. When you read through them, David will repeatedly say, I am poor. He is poor in spirit. He's not talking about finances. Many of you know that, don't you? You know that experience where you're not poor in poverty, but you feel poor in spirit. Do you know what I mean? You feel as if you've got nothing to give, nothing to, to spend. And so when he talks about the poor, primarily here, he's talking about preaching good news, the gospel to the poor. When he says here that he's come to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, well, I hope it's not primarily a physical thing, because if it was, he was a great big failure, wasn't he? Who was Jesus' cousin? John the Baptist. What happened to him? He got imprisoned. So John the Baptist sends a message to Jesus, says, hey, Jesus, I'm in prison. What does Jesus do? Come back and says, be free. No, he says, hey, tell everybody the, uh, the blind receive their sight. He goes back to Isaiah. He doesn't, he doesn't release him from prison because he's come to do something more than just release people from prison. I'm going to come back to, he has come to do that, but he's come to do more. And when you read through Luke and Acts, freedom generally is freedom from sin and oppression. A third thing he says he's going to do is um, he says he's going to recovery of sight for the blind. And whilst he will do that, when you read through the Gospels and the Epistles, it's primarily a spiritual thing. He's talking about spiritual blindness. And so he's come to do that. So very often he will talk about himself as being a light, opening people's eyes. So when we come to this, Jesus primarily is talking about a message of salvation. It's not primarily a physical thing. That was in the Old Testament. Now, remember what I said? It's not less than that. So it's going to include that. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. You see, what happens if you give sight back to a person, but they don't become a Christian? Well, they have sight for 40, 50 years, but what happens to them eternally? What happens if you give money to the poor, but you don't make them rich in Christ? Well, they have money for a few years and they can afford a car, but what happens to them in eternity? Jesus has come for the, the most important thing in that sense. is He has come primarily, firstly, to help us spiritually. He has come to make those who are poor in spirit rich, those who are prisoners to sin and death free, those who are blind to the glorious gospel see, and those who are oppressed by Satan freed. That's what he's primarily come to do. And that's always been the way, even in the Old Testament. We, we misunderstand this. So next year we'll be going through the Exodus. Remember when the people of God were in Egypt under slavery? God comes, doesn't he? And you think that their primary problem is their slavery. That's what you think, isn't it? Is that pretty much agreed? Their primary problem is their slavery? Not at all. Not at all. Their primary problem is they've fallen out with God. Think about it. When the angel of death comes over Egypt on that final night, who has to daub blood on their doorposts? 
the Israelites. Why? Because they were as equally guilty as the Egyptians. They were under God's wrath just like the Egyptians. Their primary need was not to be free from slavery. Their primary need was to be covered by the blood of the Lamb and then to be freed from slavery. It's not less than, but it's more than. And we've got to get that clear. I think very often we read the, the Bible with blinkers. The Egyptians and the Israelites were both equally under the wrath of God. And so that's why the Israelites had to daub the blood. That's why they had to have the sacrifice. So that the angel of the Lord would go over them and that they wouldn't come under God's wrath. You see, when you think of God, it's God looks at the whole person. I find that really hard. I don't know about you, but I, I find that hard to look at the whole person. To look at them physically, emotionally, mentally, psychologically, spiritually, eternally, in terms of now. I, I find it hard to, to do that. Part of the reason is because I'm limited. Just, just like you're limited. And so some of us will look at someone and, and only see their physical poverty. Whereas others of us will only see their spiritual poverty. What God does is he looks at the whole person. He sees them spiritually and physically. And whilst he wants to help them physically, he too needs to know, he knows that they need to be helped spiritually. They need to be freed. But part of the problem with being enslaved is that very often you don't realize you're enslaved. I find that hard to understand sometimes. That someone can be enslaved and, and not realize it. That someone can be enslaved and and not leave. But when you look around the world and you look at some of the worst things that happen in the world, it's, it's true. You think about little children in the sex trade who have been born in debt. They have no idea that they can get out. They have no idea. How else are they kept there? And so there are organizations that go in to find these children, these little girls and these little boys, and free them. They don't ask for it. They don't send letters. They're convinced that where they are is what they are. Think about women with abusive husbands. Sometimes the husbands will try and make them believe that they deserve it. And that's why it's so hard for the women to leave. They just strip them of their confidence. Sometimes they don't realize they can leave and that they should leave. You think about dictators around the world, like the communist dictators. Part of a, a dictator's strategy is to make the people love being dictated. They make them love it. They convince them that it's brilliant. And Satan does exactly the same. And sin does exactly the same. Some of us are enslaved to Satan and sin, and we don't even realize it. We don't even realize where we are. And so Jesus comes to save those who don't even know they're enslaved. I wonder if on that night when the uh, Israelites were going to leave Egypt, I wonder if they all realized the implications of the blood on the door. I wonder how many of them just thought, well, we're enslaved, we need to be freed. I wonder how many of them realized that if the blood didn't go on the door, they would be killed too. And part of becoming a Christian, believe it or not, is actually, Coming to that point where you, you realize, man, I, I'm God's enemy. I've lived away from him. I, I've ignored him. But the next part of the gospel is amazing, is that even before we repent, even before we realize that, God came to earth to save us. Think about that. God came to earth 2,000 years ago, before I was born. God 
in Jesus, died on the cross for my sins before I repented, before I heard the gospel. God's love is always the first mover. So we're the ones ignoring him, we're the ones living against him, but he's the one who comes in first. He's the one who gives it all up to come and to be one of us and to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. He's the one who does it all because he loves us. And so when Jesus comes, he comes to proclaim this message. He's coming and saying, look, you are blind, you are poor, you are oppressed, but I'm going to bring you freedom. I'm going to bring you freedom. And so as we come to Christmas, a reason for the season primarily is one of proclamation. It's to remind ourselves that God loved us so much that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not die but have eternal life. We just don't realize it. A good friend of mine went to study in London, and he was from Llanelli, um, so, you know, Llanelli is quite a safe place. So when he moved to London, he just didn't have a clue, so he bought an A to Z, bought an A to Z. And one day he got lost. It was about half past eight at night in the winter, and he got lost in London, and he was walking through this estate, and he didn't know where he was, so he stood outside a shop with his A to Z wide open. Brixton. A to Z wide open. Little boy from Llanelli. Ooh. Where am I like this? This little lady came out of the shop, said, do you know where you are? Oh, no, I'm looking at my A to Z. Right. Come into my shop. And she locked the door. This woman was so fearful for him that she took him into her shop and locked the door. He had no idea the danger he was in. No idea at all. But before he even went and asked for help, she came out to get him. In fact, he says, she went on the bus with him to get him back to safety. That's how much danger he was in. And you know, the Lord, even though we don't realize what danger we're in, he comes to save us. He comes to get us. And so when we come to Christmas, we've got to remember that we proclaim that. That just as Jesus came to proclaim this gospel, that our job as Christians is to proclaim it. Our friends and our family, they just don't know how much God loves them. They don't know how much Jesus did to come into this world. They don't know how much he has on offer for them. And so invite people, bring them along. But I did say, while it's more than the Old Testament physical, it's not less than. Jesus didn't come to just proclaim something spiritual. He came to proclaim something physical. And so if my first point is proclaim or preach, my second point would be practice or or practical. Jesus came to give us a practical gospel. It's not just about preaching for eternity, but it's about changing things practically now. So he would go on, wouldn't he? He would go on to preach good news to the poor. He would see tax collectors converted and who would then want to go around and give back how much they'd taken from people um, uh, dishonestly. It says that he wants to proclaim freedom to prisoners. And whilst he didn't release John the Baptist, there will be other times in the book of Acts where Peter and others will just walk out of prisons. And then he wants to give recovery of sight for the blind. He will spit with mud and put it in the eyes and a man will recover his sight again. He wants to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor permanently, not just spiritually, but practically. And Jesus did that. The apostles did that. The church throughout history can do that. Now, this is one of those things that is part of the yet but not yet of the gospel. The yet and not yet. So some of the things that Jesus come, they are now, but there's more to come. There's more to come. And so while some receive their sight, some don't. 
but in heaven they will. So while some are no longer in poverty, but are enriched, others remain in poverty, but will be enriched in heaven. But spiritually in this world, remember, Christ became poor so that we would become rich in him. And while some are under oppression, and our brothers and sisters in Iran and other countries today um, are imprisoned, some in some countries are in these storage containers, they're just boiling in there in the day. Whereas we pray for them and we, we, we must try and campaign for them, it's yet and it's, it's not yet. A day will come and they, they will be freed. And this is one of the difficult things of the Christian life, is, is living in that tension of the now and not now. Whilst the spiritual benefits come now, some of the physical benefits of the gospel will not come in this life for some people. That doesn't mean that they won't come in this life for any of God's people. Some people will be healed. Some people will be released. But many will have to wait until heaven. But he will be true to his word. He will do it. So Jesus comes and looks at us spiritually and physically. He will free us spiritually through the gospel. And some now and more in heaven, he will do that physically. But it's vital that as Jesus saw his mission as one of proclamation and practical, that as Christians we see our mission as one of proclamation and practical. I think as I prepared this this week, I felt like this is the 101st time I've preached this sermon. It feels like every year I stand up and say, look guys, preaching, proclaiming, don't stress about it, do both. Don't stress about it, do both. I think sometimes the church has a bun fight about it. I'm reading through John Stott's works this year, and it's really interesting. When John Stott started to write in the 50s, he had to write a book on balance, which was basically shouting at the evangelicals and saying, you're ignoring social action. Grow up and help the poor. That's basically what he's writing. Whereas by the end of his life, he was writing, hey guys, you've forgotten to preach the gospel. Grow up and preach the gospel. Because as a church, we pendulum swing back and forth, back and forth. We've got to see that the, the church doesn't have the option of either or doesn't have the option of either or. We proclaim and we practically help people. We help people spiritually and we help people physically. One of the best books I know on this is a book called Ministries of Mercy by Tim Keller. Ministries of Mercy by Tim Keller. And, and let me just read you a couple of quotes because I think he's superb on this. He says, it is unthinkable that we could truly love an individual and not want both to share the gospel as well as to meet the person's basic human needs. It's inconceivable. If I truly love someone, I want them safe in eternity, and I want them comfortable now. He says, word and deed are equally necessary, mutually interdependent, and inseparable ministries. I can't say it any better than that. Word and deed are equally necessary, mutually interdependent, and inseparable ministries. So, what are we doing this Christmas? Yeah, we're holding carol concerts. Yeah, we're doing candlelight services. But let me tell you what else we're doing. On Christmas Day, we're going to take those who are lonely and who are perhaps not um, able to make such a nice meal for themselves, and we're going to give them food and entertainment and company and lifts. And many of you have given sacrificially, financially, and gift bags towards them. We're not just going to proclaim the gospel. We're going to practice the gospel. And as we come to Christmas, I want you to see that that is a deliberate thing in our church. Both sides, we preach and we practice. And when Jesus came and says, the year of the Lord's Jubilee, it was more than the Old Testament, more than the physical, but it wasn't less than the physical. 
It wasn't less than the physical. It's the spiritual with the physical. So what I'm saying is, is as a church, we need to change people's lives eternally and here in this world. Easy job, isn't it? Look at the passage again. Before he stands up to read this and to proclaim his ministry, what does he do with the start of chapter 4? Chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led into the, uh, by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Before Jesus went in, he was anointed, he had the Holy Spirit, and he prayed and fasted. And it's vital that as we hit this Christmas in preparing our hearts, I want to challenge us as a church, members and non-members, all of us together as one family, because we're a family whether we're on a list or not, and let's pray and fast. Let's seek the Lord. Because we can proclaim the gospel all we want. People won't be converted unless the Lord saves them. We can help people physically all we want, but we won't do the best unless the Lord is with us. And I want us to make a difference here. Let me tell you, I, I don't want to say in January, when someone asks me how Christmas went, I don't want to say, oh, well, about 100 guests came to our various services. I don't want to say that. Do you know what I want to say? Let me just put it out there. I want to say about 200 guests came, but 100 people's lives were helped over Christmas, and a number were saved. I'm going to be honest, that's what I want to say. I say hundreds of people came, they heard the gospel. Over 100 people's lives were transformed by having gifts and food and company. And we saw lives change for eternity. That's what I want to say. And we can only do that if we're praying and fasting. So what's the third P? The third P isn't in the passage. But if we're going to prepare our hearts for Christmas, we need to proclaim, we need to practice, but there's something we need to do in response to Jesus that obviously he wasn't going to do in response to himself. And that's praise. It's praise, isn't it? Shouldn't we praise Jesus that he has incarnated himself, that he has given up the glories of heaven to become one of us, that he's gone through everything we've gone through so that we're able to say that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us, who has been tempted in every way as we were tempted, who was able to go and be obedient to death, even death on the cross, so that we wouldn't have to go to death, that he was raised from the dead as the first fruits from amongst many so that he can go and prepare a place for us. Surely our response should be one of praise. So I want to encourage you, this, this Christmas, take time out to praise the Lord. That he doesn't just care about us spiritually, but he cares about us physically. And that he doesn't just care about us physically, but he cares about us spiritually. Do you know there's nothing in your life that God doesn't know about? Nothing. I, I was blown away this week. I was reading through the first few chapters of Revelation. You know the letters to the churches? I never noticed this. As Jesus writes a church to ev- a letter to every church, he says this in every letter, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. It blew me away this week. Do you know, whatever you're going through, whatever your situation is, everybody in Armenford, everybody up the valleys, whoever's coming to the Christmas Day meal, Jesus knows. He knows what their needs are, and he has come to meet them. Our job is to praise him for it and to proclaim and practice it. Well, that's it for another episode of our From the Archives podcast. We hope that you found it challenging and encouraging. And as always, we'd like to offer you a few quick next steps that you can take right now. 
If there's anything that you'd like to discuss or any questions that have been raised, please do contact us via email to contact at amfordchurch.com. If you want to know more about what's going on in the life of the church, make sure that you like us on Facebook. And lastly, why not check us out on YouTube, where you'll find additional teaching to complement our regular sermon podcast and our From the Archives podcast. Thanks for listening.